Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail. We're announcing the next steps in our plan to increase housing supply and improve housing affordability. We've invited National to participate in forming the legislation that we plan to pass because it was clear that the National Party supported moves to speed up housing intensification. Well, in a rare move, the Labour Party and the National Party have joined forces in an attempt to fix the country's housing crisis. The two parties are supporting a new bill which would amend the Resource Management Act. A law change to allow three homes up to three storeys high on one existing section is stirring controversy as it's rushed through Parliament. Everyone agrees that New Zealand needs more houses, but Labour and National's announcement last month has been ruffling feathers. Developers have told MPs they do not want a housing density bill that gives them open slather across swathes of suburbia. And an Iwi has told urgent select committee hearings the proposed legislation is a disgrace. They basically eliminate a lot of the nuanced standards uh, around environment and construction. The Enabling Housing Supply and Other Matters Bill is currently at the select committee stage, but with bipartisan support, it will be passed in Parliament. So what does it change? We'll talk about that today and we'll have a look at urban tree corridors. We're not the only ones having growing pains, but plenty of other cities around the world have recognised the importance of having biodiversity and green corridors in these cities and are making it work. I'll talk to Dr Margaret Stanley about why they're important. First, though, Simon Wilson, a senior writer for the New Zealand Herald, explains what's new in Labour and National's housing bill. The first one is that it is an accord between the two major parties. It's extremely rare in politics, uh, and I would argue that we need more of this kind of thing, uh, particularly in issues where there are, there's a political risk to moving forward uh, with people going, oh, we don't want this change, but we know the change is necessary. In terms of the specific proposed legislation, the new bill, you know, the, I guess the main thing is that it establishes for Tier 1 cities in New Zealand, which is the major ones. So we're talking about Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. Christchurch, yes, Tauranga too. Tauranga as well. And Hamilton. Uh, there'll be essentially a single zone uh, for residential areas where every section could have up to three dwellings on it and those dwellings can go up to three storeys, and you can also subdivide your section and put three on each part of the subdivision and so on. Now, that's a significant difference, making that applicable to the whole of the residential landscape. The other new thing, really, is that there is a new set of standards which are very minimal. They apply to the bulk of the build, what you build and where it goes on the section, but they basically eliminate a lot of the nuanced standards uh, around environment and construction and uh, what houses have to be uh, that have existed in, in various district plans and in the Auckland unit plan. So um, they make it simpler and easier to build, but they undermine uh, standards that have been built up over time. So what are some of those standards that are being undermined? Um, oh, they have to do with views and sunlight and uh, proximity to boundaries, the quality of the green space, um, those sorts of things. And they also have a, a potential to introduce 
The big thing that everybody's really scared of in housing is another leaky home scandal. It began in the early 90s when untreated timber-framed Mediterranean-style houses with flat roofs and plaster cladding were all the rage and built rapidly across the country. But when bad weather hit, a major flaw was found. Cracks that were insignificant in other claddings, when in plaster, allowed significant moisture into the framing. Add to that a building code change in 1995, which allowed untreated timber to be used in framing and the rot set in. So since the leaky home scandal, we've understood that um, consenting regulations have to be you know, properly applied. Councils have to be careful. A lot of that goes out the door because so much more activity now will be permitted without needing a consent. And there's been the fear of what's been called urban slums, right? Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's difficult, this. Um, I've used the term slum, and I think I was wrong to do that, not because there isn't a risk that places will become slums. I think that may be true. Um, but when when the argument degrades into, oh, you're just going to build slums versus, oh, you're just a NIMBY, we don't get very far very fast. And, and this is a really complex issue. The things that we should be doing are nuanced. They require a good understanding uh, and good application of things like good design. You know, and that's not easy to describe. So when we start slinging terms of like slums and NIMBY and you're just going to be an urban vandal and you're just trying to protect what you've got and stop more housing being built. And that kind of crude approach, I don't think it help, it's very helpful. Mm. You know? So yes, there is a risk that the, this new bill will degrade the quality of housing in New Zealand. But let's, let's address that in a way that doesn't just turn into slogans. So then what, you know, what protections are there to prevent something like that from <laughs> happening? Um, the protections that exist, well, they are fewer than they used to be. We have, at the moment, we have a Resource Management Act, which is administered uh, by the Environment Court, uh, and the whole consenting, resource consenting process that councils use. Um, because there will be much less resource consenting required, and because in matters of national significance, this bill will put a lot of matters at the discretion of the Minister for the Environment rather than seeing them go through to the Environment Court, you know, that, re again, reduces the, the safeguards um, for quality. The new bill doesn't mean you can just put endless numbers of tiny homes on a property. There are still council regulations governing floor space and things like that. What the bill does allow for, though, is building up to 11 metres high, or three storeys, with an additional one metre for a pitched roof. You can also build much closer to the boundary, for example, minimum setbacks of only two and a half metres from the front boundary. You can do that on most sites over the city without a resource consent starting from August next year. With these changes, the government estimates that more than 100,000 homes could be built in the next five to eight years. One of the things that is both an advantage and a disadvantage in this bill is that it will enable more tiny houses to be built. Um, and for some people, that's a really good thing. You can do that to an extent now with what we think of as a granny flat, but that will enable more of this. But on the other hand, if you think about a, a standard suburban section, usually they're quite long and narrow, this bill will allow you to subdivide it, subdivide it again, if you like, and on each new subdivided site, put another three units, another three dwellings going up to three storeys. On your little suburban section, you could build a lot of homes 
Now, which might work well if there were good design standards around them, um, but because there aren't going to be prescribed high design standards, you know, it may well not work well. And, and that's going to have an impact, you know, obviously, on the whole street. And that, that becomes problematic. What about green space? There are rules relating to the amount of um, what's called pervious cover you can put on the land. In other words, you can't just put a building and, and tar seal or concrete over the whole lot. But that doesn't mean you're going to have green space. Um, carports, uh, gravel, um, there are lots of ways in which you have not green that still allows the rainwater to seep in, but doesn't, doesn't provide a garden or backyard or, or um, any kind of green environment for, for the section. What are supporters of the bill saying? A simplistic reading of supporters of the bill would say, because we haven't been doing enough fast enough, all the arguments against the bill are arguments to slow things down and oppose change. So let's just get on and do it. You can probably divide the responses to the bill in three. The first one would be people going, oh, no, we can't have that. That's a threat to our leafy neighbourhood and our large section with its backyard, and everybody deserves to have one of these one day, even though that's never going to happen. So that's, that's an approach of saying don't change where I live, mm. essentially. But most of these submitters to the bill have, have said either we like what it's trying to do, but we think it could be better. Or they've said, we like what it's trying to do, but we think it's got it wrong. But in general, you know, most submitters said, yes, we want denser cities. We want more housing built more quickly. You know, but we want to ensure that the, we don't sacrifice standards along the way. Um, in, in reality, I expect there will be some changes come back from the select committee. Um, there is talk that that's going to happen. They're not going to be radical because the time frame is so compressed. And with National and Labor both behind it, you know, there's no great political imperative to make radical changes. But there will be improvements. There will be things fixed. What do you think needs to be amended. One of the big issues with the bill is that because it uh, basically means the whole residential part of the city be covered in a single zone, that means uh, developers are incentivized to build where it's easiest and cheapest for them to do it. Whereas the whole idea about developing denser cities, which in my view is a very good thing to do, uh, is that you want to focus the development around town centres, along transport corridors, near schools, in places where having more people will mean that there is more community life, there is more functionality. You won't have to keep adding more expensive services in, in remote areas. On that point, I, I guess some people would argue that developers wouldn't want to build in those remote areas because there isn't a demand for them. The demand is in, in the inner city. Ever seen Burkino? Um, the, the, the reality is, if a developer can build in a remote area and can offer housing that is cheaper uh, than building in existing urban areas, they will do so. People will go and live there because the housing prices are cheaper. But then there are a whole lot of other social costs that get added in. If, you, if you're living tens of kilometres away from where you work you know, you've, and you've got to drive there, then that's a social cost that we all bear uh, in regard to your transport choices. And, of course, you you bear it too because you're paying for that petrol. If you're thinking about what kind of built environment do we need for the future with denser cities, with climate change rushing down at us, with the need to stop people 
chopping down trees in what you might call the urban forest or just, you know, in the cities because of a lot of that's happening. Um, if, we, if we're going to put brakes on all those sorts of things and try and make a better urban environment that's resilient for the future, which is where most of us live, um, then you do need to have an evolving set of standards about how, how you build things. We've seen massive tree loss in our urban areas. One of the concerns about the new housing bill is the impact it will have on tree corridors. I asked Dr Margaret Stanley, an associate professor at the University of Auckland specialising in urban ecology, what exactly they are. Urban tree corridors are a bit like a corridor in a building, if you can imagine that. So it's a long strip of vegetation that connects two larger pieces of forest or vegetation. And they're really important for a number of reasons. And I guess the first reason is if we focus on cities, we've been left with all these fragments, these little bits and pieces of forest throughout the city as more urban developments occurred and more and more vegetation is being chopped down and re- removed. And this has happened the world over in all our cities. Um, so that really leaves very little resources and room for animals to find food, places to breed when they're in these um, pretty small fragments. And they've also got nowhere to sort of go outside them. So once they leave that piece of um say for us, our little bush patch, it's a pretty hostile environment outside of that patch, depending on where it is. So for birds and bats and insects that are mobile and they're trying to move around the landscape to find resources, it's pretty tricky when you've got this hostile, um, you know, built environment outside with industry or houses. Um, They can experience high mortality when they step outside of that habitat or if it's not mortality, then it's often just that their populations stay very small because they can't disperse. So they're kind of just stuck in that one place. So having a corridor, hopefully it's safe because we've hopefully got some predator control in it, which is really important for New Zealand. But it means those populations, the birds or the bats or whatever, can grow bigger and move to other patches where they couldn't get before. And then they settle down there to start new populations. So if we're talking about our big cities in New Zealand, so like Auckland, how many urban tree corridors do we have? Well, it's very hard to kind of specify how many we we have. I don't think there's actually kind of a sort of policy framework um, in place for, for green corridors in cities. What we have are kind of things we call green corridors in a bit of an informal way. They're usually things like coastal strips that, you know, you often see them, you know, on Tamaki Drive, dominated by Putakawa. So they often provide a corridor by default. So sometimes they connect with big forest patch, other times they don't. Uh, the other thing we see is riparian strips. So that's what we call that vegetation that borders a stream or a river. And that river with its vegetation or streams can act as a corridor. But whether they actually link up with decent patches or are healthy corridors with good pest control and high plant diversity is often questionable. Dr Margaret Stanley says urban tree corridors are also beneficial to people. Lots of people don't get the opportunity to move out of cities and to get out to parks. They don't have transport or the ability to do that. So 
bringing the biodiversity to them in the city is really, really important in terms of stormwater mitigation and pollution Mm. mitigation. What protections do we have for urban trees in cities? Yeah, I think with the RMA amendments in 2012, we lost our general urban tree protection where you had to get a resource consent to chop down uh, trees over a certain height. And from that, the councils, I guess that's done at a, a central government, but councils are being still trying to implement uh, tree protection within cities. They can implement coastal tree protection for erosion and those riparian zones for water quality. And they're trying also many cities um, to have significant ecological areas. So they're trying to put as many protections, particularly on um, public land as they can, but it's fairly inadequate. For example, about 60% of the urban forest in Auckland is actually on private land. And very few of those trees are protected, probably only about 15% of them. And they're very kind of strange trees that are protected. And the list is not very diverse. There's some that are declared weeds on that list. It's kind of, you know, it might have been the Queen planted it or there was a particularly enthusiastic arborist that protected them. But there's no strategy in what's protected. So when it comes to the new housing bill, Dr Stanley has her concerns. What we've seen over the last probably 15 years, um, but particularly since that RMA changes, is we've seen massive tree loss in our urban areas. So up to 35% of all the trees in some of the suburbs in the Waitemata local board area have been lost over a 10-year period, for instance. Um, So we all kind of know of stories where we see the neighbours chop down a tree um, or a new development go in, but it's that death by a thousand cuts. And when it's been looked at, you know, losing a third of your forest canopy and all of the services that those um, trees bring to suburbs is is quite phenomenal. And just kind of having these, oh, well, we'll just plant a few seedlings as mitigations. You can't get benefits back from those seedlings for 50 to 100 years. Um, They just don't take up the water or the air pollution or or bring the birds in when they're little seedlings. Right, so those trees need about 50 years before they can actually bring benefits. Yeah, and the places like Portland, Oregon, have something in place called a tree bait, which recognises the benefit that the large trees bring to the city in terms of stormwater mitigation and all those services. And for every resident that has a tree over 15 metres tall on their property, you get $50 off your rates bill. If you have 10 of those, you get 10 times $50 off your rate bill. And for smaller trees, they'll give you $20. So they're really recognising that it is the larger trees that are able to sequester carbon, uh, take up water to reduce flooding risk. All of those um, benefits are in the large trees. Mm. So what provisions would you like to see in this new housing bill to really mitigate the concerns about trees and, yeah, urban tree corridors. There needs to be forward planning at a real strategic high level to look at where green corridors should go 
within the entire city and integrate them into master plans. And then when you've got those green corridors sort of mapped out or you're trying to enhance existing ones, then you would have different rules in place for developments in those areas. I mean, certainly you are likely, we know from the international literature, that the more sort of greenery and street trees in place, you get a higher price for, for the developments or the houses anyway. So, so they're going to benefit as well. But I think also one thing that's coming out internationally is this 330-300 rule that cities are trying to put in place. And it's that you should be able to see three trees from every home. There should be 30% canopy cover in every neighbourhood to make it equitable. And that you should have um, be no more than 300 metres from uh, the nearest park or green space. And that's to make sure that it's equitable because we know in Auckland, for instance, that um, the lower socioeconomic areas of Auckland have fewer street trees um, and lower urban forest canopy cover. An Auckland Council report shows parts of South Auckland have lost 10% of their trees. Otara Papatoitoi lost 8% of its trees and Mangare Otahuhu 6%. In fact, all five southern board areas are all well under minimum cover levels. So all of those benefits for health and well-being um, that those people are missing out. So it's about equity as well. I think not separating infrastructure from uh, environment is really, really important. You can see certainly Auckland Council has a, a new push on, on green infrastructure as well. So I think we're just starting to see some of this evolve, but then when you overlay housing intensification over the top, that's where it's becoming really difficult to make gains But I don't think it should be that way because we can see from overseas that, you know, very dense cities like Singapore, Mexico City, Montreal, et cetera, they all have green corridors. Paris has just announced a massive green corridor project for their city. So, you know, we're not the only ones having growing pains, but plenty of other cities around the world have recognised the importance of having biodiversity and green corridors in their cities and are making it work. The Environment Committee's report on the bill is due this week. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Simon Wilson and Dr Margaret Stanley. Ka kite anō. Listener.